Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 75. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? A speck is the Hebrew term treif, but do not consider the plank in your own eye. A plank is that of the beams of the cedars of Lebanon. Keep in mind that the temple was built with the beams of the cedars of Lebanon. Shalom once again, and welcome to the podcast of Real Israel Talk Radio. I am Avi Ben Mordechai, and on our program today, we will continue with the words of Shaul or Paul on emulating the model of biblical love as it is expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. On the last podcast, I was uh, speaking to you about four Hebrew words that I believe are often given an expression that um, sometimes can be confusing in the English language. They uh, tend to get meanings that can sometimes lead us to some wrong interpretations and making some wrong doctrinal conclusions. But again, I always seek to remain upfront with all of my listeners here on this program to publicly admit that I am not an academically trained Greek or Hebrew linguist. So do not ever think that I hold some qualified position that makes me a final authority in Hebrew and or in Greek, because I am not any kind of a biblical language authority. My only qualification to present my views is that of my own personal experiences and understanding in the studies that I've done in Scripture over the many past decades. My objective is to permit any and all scriptural context to help us all rightly divide the voice of the word of truth. On the last program, I spoke about Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 13.5 when he said, Love does not behave rudely as it's expressed through the New King James Version of the Bible. Other translations offer us some different thoughts from the underlying Greek concept using the English words unbecoming and or unseemly. And I would say that this idea is based largely on the Masoretic Hebrew scripture term erva, erva. And this is spelled ein reish vav Hey, erva, which is related to the root ara ein reish hey. The only difference between the two words, ara and erva, is the added vav between the two terms. Now, the word ara, which as I told you on the previous program that we did, means something or someone who is naked, exposed, and or uncovered, meaning that one is not wearing any clothing. 
So quite simply, the two words, ara and erva, do have connotations involving nakedness and being uncovered and also exposed. But they also are crossover terms to imply a manner of behavior or actions that are considered unbecoming and unseemly. So let's start with Deuteronomy or the volume chapter 23, verses 12 through 14. Moses writes to the Hebrew nation and says, You shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, and you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse, that is, your excrement. For Jehovah your Elohim walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you or save you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be kadosh, or holy, that he, meaning Jehovah, may not see any unclean thing among you and turn away from you. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 14, the statement that Jehovah may not see any unclean thing among you, the word unclean thing is the term ervat devar. And this term ervat devar derives from the Hebrew word erva, which is what we were talking about here, involving the idea of something that is unbecoming, unseemly, and by implication, being naked, exposed, or uncovered. So here we learn what Moses wrote, saying that Jehovah does not want to step into human excrement or dung in the Hebrew camp. Thus, the divine instruction was for the Hebrews to dig a hole outside the camp, do their business, and then after, cover up the hole containing their excrement so that when Jehovah walks through the camp, that it does not remain uncovered and exposed to him because he considers human excrement or human dung to be unseemly and, uh, I could add the word, smelly, because it is. Well, I don't actually blame him. How many of you have stepped into dog poo on the neighborhood lawn or even on your own lawn or a sidewalk? I'm pretty sure that it's gross enough that you don't just want to be tracking it into your home from the bottom of your foot or the bottom of your shoe and then dragging it onto the carpet or the flooring of your home. Okay, well, the same thing was also true with Jehovah. Physical human dung, like dog poo or any animal excrement for that matter, is considered in the Bible to be erva, that is, unbecoming and unseemly. And this does not only mean something physically unbecoming or unseemly, there is also a spiritual counterpart 
to this physical metaphor, meaning that it is also the reality, that erva can also mean something that is or someone who is spiritually and or perhaps even emotionally behaving unbecomingly, unseemly, naked, exposed, and uncovered. Again, all of this is derived from the volume or Deuteronomy 23, 14 through 15. So this statement is actually pretty interesting because it has a connection to what Paul was writing about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Goyim or the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And then he goes on through two whole chapters, that's 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, dealing with this whole concept. Now, what makes this interesting is that the term sexual immorality, as it's used in the Hebrew context, is directly related to this Hebrew word erva, meaning unbecoming and unseemly, which is, by implication, taking us back to ara in Hebrew, meaning naked, exposed, and uncovered. That is what the Hebrew mindset is pointing us to as the defining term for what this passage in the Greek is calling sexual immorality. Now, we're not going to go into this here, but it's something that you can take a look at and you'll get a better idea as Paul is writing about it, okay? Now, with all this said, I would like you to turn to Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1, because there is another Hebrew word that we should become familiar with, and that term is aram and or Arum. Again, Aram and or Arum. And this means something or someone that is cunning, crafty, shrewd, prudent, brilliant, and very wise. But the question is, why is this word Arum used in both passages of Genesis 2.25? And Genesis 3.1. What was the divine reason for using this same word to describe the character of the serpent, the devil, the Nahash in the garden, and the character of both Adam and Hava or Adam and Eve? Could this have been what Paul was driving at in 1 Corinthians 13.5 when he said, Love does not behave unbecomingly and unseemly, meaning biblical love is not going to be grossly smelly, naked, uncovered, and exposed in the same way that human excrement or animal dung is likewise naked, exposed, and unseemly if it remains uncovered in a shallow pit outside of the Hebrew camp, or 
even if it is sitting on your front lawn or your neighbor's front lawn or even on a city or town sidewalk. The fact is, you don't want to step in it. So what I'm saying is that Paul likely meant that the divine model of biblical love does not behave in a way that is considered cunning, crafty, shrewd, brilliant, and very wise. But I would say, why not? What is that referring to specifically? Well, we're going to find out, because he then goes on in 1 Corinthians 13.5 to say that biblical love does not seek its own. Well, what does that mean? From the Greek word, this means that the biblical love model of 1 Corinthians 13 does not go around inspecting everything and everyone as though each of us are allegedly tasked with being nitpickers with every little unseemly or unbecoming thing that we come across in and among fellow believers, those people that are around us in our everyday lives and communities. And this is what Yeshua was getting at in Matthew 7, 3-5, through 5, when he said, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? The Hebrew term for the Greek word that represents the English word, a speck, is the Hebrew term treif. That is, why do you look at the traif in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? A plank in the Hebrew idea is that of a beam made from a tree, like perhaps a cedar of Lebanon. Keep in mind that the temple was built with the beams of the cedars of Lebanon. How can you say to your brother, giving us the context that this is referring to brethren, that is, those among the household of our spiritual faith? Let me remove the speck or the traif from your eye. And look, a plank or a large tree beam is in your own eye. So Yeshua says, when we do that, we are considered hypocrites. And he says, first remove the plank or the large tree beam. Again, those are the kinds of beams that the temple in Jerusalem was made from, called the cedar of Lebanon. Remove it from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the trafe or the tiny little speck from your brother's eye. So, if Paul was in fact making the point that the biblical love model of heaven does not behave cunning or crafty or shrewd or prudent or brilliant or even very wise, well, what do you think he was referring to? We have to take this into consideration because the serpent in that passage was said to be exactly this way that he was cunning, crafty, shrewd, prudent, brilliant, 
and very wise. Indeed, he was. But in the same way, Adam and Eve were also said to be the same way, except with one difference compared to the serpent in these two passages. In Genesis 2.25, Adam and Eve were, in fact, naked, exposed, and uncovered towards all that the Messiah's kingdom stood for on earth. And then the text says, and they were not ashamed, or in Hebrew, they were not disappointed, whereas the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it is written that he was naked, exposed, and uncovered towards his own earthly, natural, and lower world serpentine philosophy. What I'm saying is that the biblical nakedness issue of being exposed and or uncovered and or unseemly and or unbecoming must always be understood within its context of direction. In other words, ask the question, in which direction is one's unbecoming, unseemly, naked, and exposed behavior pointing? In which direction? As I am trying to understand Paul's context and his Hebraically trained mindset from 1 Corinthians 13.5, well, I think that he was referring to a kind of love that was and is not from above, but rather is something that comes from below, meaning earthly, man-made, natural philosophies that essentially justify putting ourselves first over and above everyone else. We sometimes elevate ourselves over others in the body of Messiah as we seek to puff ourselves up in what Jehovah calls pride, along with our bombastic words and arrogance in our personal learning and knowledge. And I'm telling you, this is the wisdom from below and not the wisdom from above. Hence, for Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.25, their nakedness and their exposure was towards the kingdom of heaven, the word of Jehovah, which is a true wisdom from above, a wisdom that they were not ashamed of, not at all. But by comparison, the serpent's wisdom of Genesis 3.1 was a self-seeking wisdom from below. And this would explain why Paul said in Colossians 2.8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the substances of the underlying natural world, and not according to Messiah. Now, I do admit, I paraphrased this from the way it's normally read in most biblical translations, but that is the point that I'm trying to bring out. 
that there are these two ways of looking at being cunning, crafty, and shrewd. One way of looking at it is from above, and another way of looking at it is from below. This was, in fact, Paul's answer to Genesis 2.25, that Adam and Eve were naked and exposed towards the direction of King Messiah, the Word, and his kingdom in heaven, which is why they were not ashamed, as it says in Genesis 2.25, whilst the serpent was very much like Adam and Eve, in that he was cunning and crafty and shrewd, and by implication, naked and exposed towards his own kingdom on earth below. So therefore, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.2, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, that would be the Hebrew word arum or aram, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. In other words, by receiving the messianic word and redemption from heaven, we are not naked, exposed, and uncovered towards natural wisdom, the stuff that we find in everyday life here on earth. No, we are not naked, exposed, and uncovered towards that. But instead, because of our redemption in Messiah, we are naked, exposed, and uncovered towards King Messiah and the messianic divine wisdom that is part of the kingdom of heaven. In the light of this truth, we can understand why Yaakov, or James, brother of Yeshua, said what he said about the two kinds of wisdom that exist in the world, that is, one type of wisdom that comes from above and another type of wisdom that comes from below. He records that for us in Yaakov or James 3.13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct or good actions or behavior that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above. It is earthly, natural, or as the Greek puts it, it's of the natural world and whatever belongs to it. And it's also demonic, as the text says, which the Greek is telling us is a wisdom that originates from the lower spirit world. Then James or Yaakov 3.16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, there is confusion, and every evil is there. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without judging according to faces, that means without showing partiality, and without hypocrisy. So when he says that the wisdom from above is first pure or innocent, that gives us the idea that is referenced in Matthew 10, 16, when Yeshua said, 
Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and innocent or pure as doves. When Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13.5 that divine giving love does not behave in a manner that is considered erva, meaning it does not behave in a manner that is considered unbecoming and unseemly, and by implication, naked, exposed, and uncovered, we therefore learn that divine love does not approach relationships in order to empty the bowel and or bladder of our mouths on brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah. Now, I'm going to take a quick break here, and I'll continue talking about this important subject from 1 Corinthians 13.5. I am Avi ben Mordechai, and you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 75. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads. Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. And once again, thanks for joining us and coming back to the second half of our podcast on being wise as serpents and gentle or innocent as doves as we're addressing this subject of 1 Corinthians 13.5. For Adam and Eve, or Adam and Hava, in Genesis 2.25, again, their nakedness and their exposure was and is towards the kingdom of heaven. That is the word of Jehovah, which is a true wisdom from above. It's a wisdom that they were not ashamed of and definitely not disappointed in. By comparison, the serpent's wisdom in Genesis 3.1, which is the same word from Genesis 2.25 in Hebrew, his wisdom was and is a self-seeking wisdom from below. It's man-made wisdom. When Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13.5, The assertion that divine giving love does not behave in a manner that is considered erva, meaning it does not behave in a manner that is considered unbecoming and unseemly, and by implication, naked, exposed, and uncovered, we therefore learn that divine love does not approach relationships in the same way that we might come to a toilet inside or outside our camp in order to empty the bowel and or bladder of our mouths on brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah. Indeed, too often we do just that. We empty out the bodily wastes of our filthy mouths and our filthy hearts of flesh and we empty it all out on people that are around us in our communities, in our congregations, and yes, even in our homes. And I'm talking about discharging the dung or the excrement of our unseemly 
and unbecoming actions and words in the same way going to a toilet to do our business. Thus, we become bodily and mouthy conduits of urination and defecation on all those around us simply for whatever reasons that we justify in our own minds. We open the floodgates of our potty mouth to justify unnecessary, unloving words and actions, imposing on the one who is listening to us the toilet waste of what's coming out of our hearts. We permit ourselves to speak this way to a husband, a wife, a family member, a friend, a brother, a sister, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a community of believers in Yeshua. Oh, indeed. We sometimes have no boundaries, and we do all of this with self-justification in the camp of Messiah. Well, consequently, Paul's words that the divine biblical love model of heaven from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 does not behave with erva in Hebrew, meaning it does not behave with words or actions that could be classified as Arum, cunning, crafty, and by implication, unbecoming and unseemly, and naked, exposed, and uncovered, all through a philosophical partnership with natural earthly wisdom, because that kind of stuff is unbecoming, it's unseemly, it's naked, exposed, and uncovered towards the one who is crafty, cunning, and philosophically in partnership with his own natural earthly wisdom. And he's the one that takes all that stuff and he uses it in his characteristic of being twisted towards being unbecoming, unseemly, naked, exposed, and uncovered in this world. In comparison... When we come to Yehovah and uh, we stand before him fully naked, exposed, and uncovered towards him, not towards the serpent, but towards him, he then acknowledges that we are seeking to be humble in front of him. And in being humble before him, he will then clothe us with his acceptance, his love, his wisdom, presence, and his very wise mind, which is in Messiah. Certainly, that's what Paul understood in 1 Corinthians 2, 16. For who has known the mind of Yehovah or the mind of Yudhe that he may instruct him? <laughs> so Paul says, but we have the mind of Messiah. So when we walk in the mind of Messiah, which means, according to Romans 8, to walk in the Spirit, we will have no shame or disappointment in Yehovah, because Yehovah will be clothing us with himself. And this is the promise of Genesis 3.21. Let me give you the rendering in English as I have looked at it in the Hebrew. And he, referring to Yehovah or Yudhe Elohim, he 
will cause them, referring to Adam and Eve, to be clothed or worn. Yeah, that's what it says. So what does Jehovah do? He covered them with a temporary layer of skin. And this is literally skin in Hebrew, not animal skin from some animal sacrifice like many like to say that it was. No, I'm sorry, I don't see that here. This is not about a physical animal sacrifice. Rather, he covers the nakedness and exposure of Adam and Eve towards the word of Jehovah, because they were naked toward him and were not ashamed, not at first. But then, as the text goes on through Genesis chapter 3, we learn that they were naked and ashamed in front of him. So they went from being not ashamed to being ashamed. So again, Jehovah covers the nakedness and exposure of Adam and Eve toward the word of Jehovah, and he covers them with flesh. But keep in mind, it's only temporary, and it is meant only to cover them and us until the last day resurrection, which we learn about in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Behold, says Paul, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last shofar or trump. For the trumpet or the shofar will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So this covering that we are wearing right now, this is a covering of flesh skin from Genesis 3.21. And we're wearing it because it was passed down to us from Adam and Eve, but it is going to melt away at the last day resurrection, and it will be replaced with our exposed, uncovered nakedness towards his divine light. And this will be our new body for eternal life. And we'll go back to the way it was in the beginning when Adam and Eve were naked and exposed to Jehovah, not to the serpent, but to Jehovah, and they were not ashamed. They were not disappointed in Genesis 2.25. In the meantime, we still have to deal with this old man until he is redeemed and then he will become the new man. And when we get born from above, or when we are redeemed by the blood of Yeshua, what happens? Our old man is crucified with Messiah, and we receive a new inner man. And that new inner man is naked, exposed, and uncovered towards Jehovah but again, without shame. Just as it says 
in Genesis 2.25. So in this, Jehovah will then clothe us, meaning he will put us on, as though to wear a glorious garment of wisdom and love and the spirit of his truth. So thus Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that when this happens, we will all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Master, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Ruach or Spirit of Jehovah. So this transformation idea from glory to glory is an idea that is found in three places of Hebrew Scripture. Gidon, or Gideon, in Judges 6.34, with Amasai in 1 Chronicles 12.18, and with Zechariah, or Zechariah, in 2 Chronicles 24.20. All of this is very important to the overall meaning of 1 Corinthians 13.5. So let's take a quick look at these three passages to get an idea of what Shaul was driving at in this whole idea of being without shame, but yet being changed on the inside and soon to be changed on the outside through the last day, resurrection from the dead or in Hebrew, the Techiat Hamatim. In Judges 6.34, we learn this. The Spirit of Jehovah came upon Gidon. In Hebrew, it reads, The Ruach Jehovah Labsha et Gidon. The proper understanding and translation of that passage would be as follows. And the spirit, or the ruach of Jehovah, was to or towards the wearing of Gideon, or Gidon. In other words, Jehovah wore Gideon, or he wore Gidon. And how did he wear him? He put him on like a garment. And that's why the Hebrew says, et Gidon, because it's Jehovah through the Aleph Tav, that wears him. So he is being worn by Messiah, the word in heaven, from the kingdom of heaven. That's what it says in Hebrew. Let's go to the next passage, which tells a similar story. First Chronicles 12, verse 18. The Hebrew from this text is found in First Chronicles 12, 19. The English text is in verse 18. The Hebrew text is in verse 19, and it reads as follows. The Ruach Labsha et Amasai. So translating that from the Hebrew, this is how it would read. And the spirit was toward or to wearing Amasai. The spirit wore Amasai because of this Hebrew word Labsha. Lavsha is the idea in Hebrew that the Spirit wore Amasai. And how did the Spirit wear Amasai? Well, the text tells us it was et Amasai. In other words, the Aleph Tab 
is what wore Amisai. So the spirit through the Aleph Tav or the Messiah put on Amisai. He wore him kind of like uh, going to your walk-in closet or your clothes cupboard and pulling out one of your favorite outfits or something that you want to wear for the day. So you take it off of the hanger and you put it on. That's the idea that's being said right here in the Hebrew text, in the same way that it happened also to Gideon or Gidon. Now, there's a third reference, and that is in 2 Chronicles 24.20. Here we learn this. The Ruach Elohim Labsha et Zechariah ben Yehoiada. So in translating that into English from Hebrew, I would say, and the spirit of Elohim Labsha wore or put on or came towards to wear at Zechariah. He wore Zechariah. And how did the spirit wear Zechariah? By putting him on through wearing the olive top. That is, by wearing the Messiah. So Mashiach, the word, the olive top, the beginning and the end, he is the clothing that covers and wears Zechariah, the priest, the Kohen. And look what they did to him. <laughs> they killed him. Boy, that's an interesting idea in and of itself. But we're not going to address that here, but it's uh, something you can think about and uh, consider, okay? So I want to go back to this idea that when we approach Jehovah in our humility and we don't come to him in our own earthly, man-made, serpentine wisdom, if we come to him naked, exposed, and uncovered, not wearing any of our own clothes from the world, but we just come to him bare and bearing our soul, bearing our heart, bearing our mind, completely naked, what does he do? He sees that as our humility, and then he clothes us with Messiah. He puts us on with the Hebrew word lavsha et, and then put in your name. That's what he does, as though to wear you as a glorious garment of wisdom and love and the spirit of his truth. So then once again, you've got to go back to 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, that is, our face is exposed, naked and uncovered in front of him, beholding the glory of yud heh the Master, Yeshua, the Messiah. And what's happening there? We are being changed into his likeness because he's wearing us like he wears a piece of clothing. And we're being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory unto another, constantly in a flux of change. This comes from Yehovah, who is the Spirit, who is the Ruach. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Now, if we engage our minds to understand and accept that the serpent was cunning, crafty, and very wise with earthly wisdom, 
It's the kind of stuff that he comes up with. Then it would also be true that his cunning, crafty, and very wise wisdom is nothing more than naked, exposed, uncovered, unbecoming, and unseemly. It's all pointing towards the serpent's own nature, which is represented by the Hebrew term arum, which again, as I've said, arum means cunning, crafty, and very wise. But it also, by implication, is referring to the serpent being naked, exposed, and uncovered because it's all part of this earthly, lower world wisdom that we have in this world. It's not Jehovah's wisdom that we're talking about here. Thus again, if I haven't said this enough already, I'll say it again, that Adam and Eve were likewise cunning, crafty, and very wise toward Jehovah's own nature. And in doing so, they were not ashamed. So this is why Yeshua said in Matthew 10, 16, be wise as the serpent. Yes, be wise as the serpent, but don't be like him. Instead, be as innocent as the dove. The dove is the representation of the spirit, the spirit of Jehovah. So be as innocent as the spirit of Jehovah, which is the wisdom from above. Just use the same craftiness, the same wisdom, the same brilliance, the same shrewdness. Just use all that same stuff, but derive it from above and not below. That's all he's saying. And so Paul understood all of this as a description of what true love is all about. It's a character, a character of a room from above, not from below. Crafty and shrewd and very wise towards the natural heavenly wisdom that Jehovah endows every one of us with if we should just simply ask him. But the problem is, we don't ask him for the wisdom. We try to rely upon our own wisdom or the wisdom and counsel of others in the world, and it can just bring a bunch of confusion to us, and we become double-minded, kind of like the waves of the sea, which is exactly what Yaakov or James was saying in Yaakov or James chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. So this leads us to the fact that Adam and Eve, Adam and Hava, were originally without shame. They were not disappointed, and they did not have shame, nor were they ashamed to have themselves standing in front of Jehovah the Word, naked, exposed, and uncovered, because it meant that He would cover them. Now, I'm going to stop right here, because I'm going to come back on the next podcast, and we'll talk more about this idea of shame, or to be ashamed, because it's coming from a Hebrew adjective that is the term bosh, or the noun busha. And I want to look at this in greater detail. It will help us to get a better picture of the mind of Paul and what he's driving at in 1 Corinthians 13, okay? So we'll talk about shame on the next podcast. Now, if you want any information about 
the coming home ministry and what we're doing here and how we're trying to present things, well, just go to the website at www.cominghome.co.il. Again, cominghome.co.il. And when you go there, you can have a look around, you can download product, and you know, every time you buy something, it does help support us, but in no way am I saying, oh, you have to give, you got to donate, and I start bugging you for money. I don't do that stuff. If you want to give, give. If you don't want to give, then don't give. It's that simple. And for those of you that do give and support the work here, thank you so very much. It means a lot to me. And uh, we don't squander any of the money we get here. We don't use it and spend it on stupid things. We use it for the purposes of supporting ourselves and helping us to continue to do the work. And once again, let me leave you with Matthew 10, 16. Be wise, clever, cunning, crafty, and really smart, just like the serpent. But don't derive any of your cunning, crafty actions and behavior from below. Rather, point yourself toward the wisdom from above, and it will be very different. And then pray and ask Him for that wisdom, and don't doubt Him, and you will not be a double-minded person, unstable in all your ways. He'll give you the wisdom from above. Because He gave it to Adam and Eve, they just squandered it and used it in the wrong way. Don't do that. Believe Him, and He'll give you the wisdom you're looking for. Because it's a wisdom from above. But you got to come to Him naked, exposed, and uncovered. You can't come with your own clothing. Let Him clothe you. Okay, take care of yourselves. Have a great week. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. Real Israel Talk Radio.